Welcome to the inaugural episode of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your host and conspiracy skeptic, Carl Namer. This is the first in about a 12-part podcast series where we examine some of the classic conspiracies of today and in the not-too-distant past. Uh, Before we begin, a bit of background about me. I'm 41 years old. I have a BA in psychology from a crappy Canadian university called the University of Windsor. I never went to Yale. I'm not part of the Northeastern establishment. I belong to no secret societies. I've never been asked to masturbate in a coffin surrounded by the bones of Geronimo and President Taft. My professional career is in software, mostly working out of Toronto. I did a stint in Seattle working at a dot-com, which in a sense was a bit like lying in a coffin surrounded by bones and masturbating. I work as a technical writer. Technical writers are the people who write the computer manuals and help files users demand when they buy a product, uh, but never actually use when they need help. So I've spent a great part of my adult life being a moderately paid placebo. Technical writers are generally good at taking the bizarre ravings of nearly inarticulate fanatics, that is computer programmers, and putting them into words average people can understand. So I think that qualifies me to host this podcast, where I hope to take the bizarre ravings of nearly inarticulate conspiracy fanatics and put their ideas into words people can understand. And by people, I mean my fellow skeptics. I'm going to be preaching to the choir in this podcast. If you're looking for a balanced podcast, well, this ain't it. To quote the host of the very, very good Quackcast podcast, uh, Dr. Mark Chrislip, quoting Thomas Jefferson, who might have been a Freemason, quote, ridicule is the only weapon that can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. While I will no doubt heap some ridicule upon proponents of various conspiracy theories, I will examine conspiracy theories in the light of reason, logic, and just plain old common sense. Uh, Let's see, more about me. I used to write for the Toronto Sun newspaper as a computer columnist, and uh, I also used to write for iMagazine's online edition. I also used to write for a daily comic strip syndicated by the Washington Post. So for you conspiracy nuts out there, I guess I'm a stooge of the media. Although I should note I've only been a freelance contributor to those publications, so I guess maybe this podcast is just about me trying to buy my way back into their favor. As a technical writer, I work for a Canadian tax software company, and in university I worked at a government-owned Petro-Canada. So I guess I've also been a stooge for the government and big oil. To those who think maybe this podcast is my attempt to buy my way back into favor of big oil, no, I have no interest in wearing a brown acrylic sweater again and, and going back to my old job authorizing gas pumps. And I don't speak French, so there's no way I could ever get a cush job with the Canadian government. So, as I said, I envision this podcast to have a life of about 12 episodes. There really aren't a great deal of novel and emerging conspiracies out there. They tend to be variations on a theme. 9-11 is a good example. Big bad government, international Zionist, CIA... Everyone is implicated but space aliens and the Trekkies. I should note, too, I'm not going to touch 9-11. 9-11 seems to to have blown all the juicy conspiracies off the radar. Nobody is sadder than me. This podcast may well end up being the equivalent of those computer museums that are sprouting up. You know, men my age are older, waxing fondly about their TRS-80s and K-Pro luggables. This week we're going to wax somewhat fondly about the one-world government conspiracy that seemed to grip parts of society, notably American society, shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union and shortly before the dawn of the new millennium. This, my friends, is Conspiracy Prime. 
Things were better when the Soviet Union stood poised to steamroll Europe with 100 divisions of hardened Hun killers. God, it was so obvious to Americans who was behind all their political, economic, and personal troubles. The commies. They gave America rock and roll, plastic, video games, fluoridated water, cradle-to-grave social programs, gun control, health care, psychotherapy, food court malls, and a thousand other things that not only made their lives easier, but made it easier for the commies to march in and take over without firing a shot. Funny thing happened on the way to the end of the millennium. The USSR collapsed and split up. In hindsight, people in the West wondered how they could actually have been frightened of the Ruskies. A nation that could not transport more than 10% of its crops to market unspoiled did not seem to be up to the job of moving half a million conscripts through the Fulda Gap. To really put the boot in, the U.S. military demonstrated in Kuwait what it was always planning for in the Rhineland. A force outnumbered three to one could still whip a million-man army in a matter of days, as long as it was comprised of young pups who firmly believed that grunt was the best job they were ever going to get in an early 90s recession-plagued economy. It helped that there was $30 billion in Nintendo military gadgetry to provide a touch of backup, but really, it was the thought that counted. After the fall of the USSR, many a troubled conspiracy theorist had to revise his worldview. Not a lot initially. For many, it was just another crafty Soviet plot. But reluctantly, most had to join the paradigm shift. With one major player down, who was left on the world domination playing field? The One World Government. If you spend a couple of weeks on Usenet's newsgroup, remember Usenet? Yeah. Uh, no, not alt.bondage. Alt.conspiracy. All would be revealed to you. Americans themselves were collectively to blame. Government officials elected to office were conspiring to create a one-world government. The mileage varied on the hows and whys, but the alt.conspiracy crowd tended to break it down thusly. One, international bankers. Two, politicians in league with space aliens. Three, the Antichrist. Or four, a combination of the above three, were trying to push North America into chaos. Once they pushed things conveniently out of control, a state of emergency would be declared, guns would be confiscated, true patriots would be herded into concentration camps in Alaska and Oklahoma. Finally, the UN, the mescaloids from the Galactic Federation, and or the legions of hell would waltz in and set up shop all without firing a shot. Let's examine what the conspiracy buffs had to say about each of these three theories. Alienation. A super-secret government within the government called MJ-12, aka Majestic-12, has been presiding over the alien question since the days of President Eisenhower. Some say Truman. MJ-12 has been keeping all sorts of stuff from the American people. Alien abductions, cattle mutilations, and crashed saucers. If that wasn't bad enough, a bunch of secret deals were cut with one or more alien races. The theory goes that rapid technological advances since the 50s came not from the billions of dollars spent on the arms race and space race, but from donated technology from spacemen. Face it, humans were not smart enough to build the pyramids, and they were not smart enough to build Saturn V rockets. You're probably asking, so what did we have to give up to get all this tech? Apparently, America traded cattle anuses for Pentium chips. Sounds like a good deal, but in reality, it wasn't. Some figure all these cattle mutilations and abductions were really an attempt to turn humans into breeding stock for some inbred aliens. Mm, this interbreeding theory may account for why UFOs were always grabbing moonshine-drinking yahoos with an affinity for farm animals. Can America put a stop to this? Not a chance, according to Milton William Cooper, an alleged former intelligence man with the U.S. government. 
If the secret should get out, Cooper said MJ-12 has a plan to round up all sorts of people and pack them in the concentration camps. He also said GFK was about to blow the whole lid off the alien thing and had to be bumped off. Bankers. Apparently, a free market economy wasn't good enough for the international bankers. Although CEOs continuously gripe about government meddling and donate large wads of cash to fervently anti-communist political parties, this was all an act. In truth, a dozen rich families, led by the moneylenders and industrialists, were secretly planning a one-world communist regime. The problem with living in a free society is consumers are not free to buy things. This must end. The roadblock to force consumerism was the United States, but not the entire United States. The intellectual elite, the Fed, the media, and a bunch of others sold out long ago. Anyone who didn't acknowledge the conspiracy was pretty much part of it. America's freedom rests solely in the hands of the good old boy militias. These were the same good old boys who sat patiently with shotgun over knee outside their Florida trailer homes, awaiting the Cuban hordes to storm the beaches. Occasionally, they would pick off a trade student who rang the wrong doorbell. But all that was before the information economy made the fact that you could sweat and grunt a less marketable skill. While the new economy seemed to have no need for unskilled labor, the good old boys found their own uses. They formed citizen militias and ran through Michigan forests, drilling for the day when the government declares martial law. When UN forces pour out of secret bases in U.S. national parks and round up all true patriots, take their guns and put them in concentration camps. Running with the Devil there's no mention of North America in the Bible, but that doesn't seem to phase many Christian fundamentalists who believe everything that's going wrong in North America is evidence of the end times. Before the end, the devil's going to incorporate the U.S. and Canada into a one-world government and run the ship of state with the Antichrist as maximum leader. The faithful, well, maybe not the most religious because they're going to vanish during the rapture, uh, the faithful are going to resist to the end. That all of this was preordained, translation, there's not a thing you can do to change it, didn't seem to bother many American Christians who were stocking up on guns and bags of fertilizer. Satan wasn't much worried about a few exploding cube vans, however. Since even Christians have to eat, the devil was going to inject a microchip into the butts of his five billion best buddies. Only those with this little chip, i.e. the mark of the beast, were going to be able to buy stuff. Refused chips, who stayed faithful to God, were going to be put in camps. Why the camps, you ask? Simple. They needed to be kept from getting underfoot in the Holy Land. The Russians and Chinese were going to invade a strip of turf called Armageddon with 200 million troops. The Battle of Armageddon was going to make Kursk look like a slap fight between two frat boys who locked bumpers on the highway. Before all sides let go with their nukes, nukes Reagan once mused would be needed to fight the Antichrist, Jesus would come back and reign for a thousand years. Oddly, Christians seem to be silent on what happens after that thousand year period. Okay, let's look a little more in-depth into those sort of three main theories about the one world government, the alienation, the banker conspiracy, and the uh, running with the devil conspiracy. Uh, I think in this podcast, I'm going to deal with the alienation conspiracy. And the next podcast, we'll finish up with the international bankers and the devil. That is, if they don't get to me first. All right, so alienation. The UFO crowd and alt.alien.visitors, one of those Usenet groups, was pretty insistent that the answer to is there anyone out there was a firmly established duh. Some, such as astronomers, are not so certain. Before science is prepared to accept that, you know, spacemen walk among us, 
An alien body or some item of unearthly manufacture would be nice. Thank you very much. The UFO believers claim this kind of unquestionable evidence was already in human hands. Unfortunately, it was in the wrong hands. There's a conspiracy involving top government officials, NASA personnel, generals, and every American president since Truman to keep it all from us. Why hide the evidence? The pat answer was there would be panic in the streets if we knew UFOs were real. The cabal that was covering it all up must not think too highly of a population that lived with the knowledge that thermonuclear midnight had been four minutes away since the dawn of the Cold War. You would think if anything could motivate a people to freak out, pull their money out of the stock market, or do something truly unthinkable like vote for politicians outside the two-party system, it would be the revelation that commies have every backwater on the auto club map targeted with a MERV. There must be something more to it. Humans, survivors of countless upheavals, have not only proven themselves to be quite adaptive to sudden change, but they have also proven themselves to be quite tasty. Is there crunchy goodness that is one suggested reason why there's been a huge UFO cover-up? A reptilian race with a taste for human sashimi was en route to Earth in a spaceship that looked like an asteroid. Luckily, a race of grey aliens and flying saucers got to Earth first to warn us about the coming Dinan invasion. The greys also struck up an alliance and were supplying the defense establishment with incredible technology. The catch was the government agreed to let the aliens occasionally snatch some people. Why? It seems these poor greys, in the process of building Dyson spheres, lost the wisdom that you shouldn't have sex with your sister. It seems they let all the water leak out of their gene pool. They need our DNA to prime the genetic pump. Unfortunately, your average citizen isn't going to stand for government-approved kidnappings, no matter what kind of techno-gunk can be had. The blowback from other shadowy plots, such as CIA mind control experiments and, and putting former Nazis on the public payroll, has made it abundantly clear that Joe Sixpack doesn't quite understand the lengths one must go to protect national security. Critics of the government knows they're up there, they just ain't telling us conspiracy theory, argue that if this were true, it was clearly the most successful cover-up of all time. After all, it would require over 40 years the silence of hundreds of people from different walks of life. Nixon couldn't keep Watergate under wraps, Reagan couldn't keep Iran-Contra from tainting his administration, war hero Bush couldn't keep a rotten economy from an electorate hepped up on jingoism, W. Bush couldn't keep Enron from an American public hepped up on more jingoism. So if American presidents can't keep relatively small bushfires under control, how come every one of them since Truman has managed to keep his explosive story quietly smoldering? Enter MJ-12. Enter MJ-12, aka Majestic-12. MJ-12 was a super-secret government within the government. MJ-12 had been trying to keep the whole alien thingy under wraps since it was formed in 1952. Threats and the occasional political assassination kept everyone in line. According to a transcript of a speech given by Milton William Cooper in 1989, MJ-12 bumped off JFK because he was about to spill the beans on the saucermen. Cooper claimed he was a former military intelligence man with the inside scoop on the whole alien conspiracy. Bregman Assassin's Bullet, Cooper revealed a lot about the alien cover-up in MJ-12. Among many allegations, he said, 1. We've had secret bases on the moon since the mid-60s. 2. The government had a shadowy plan called Alternative 3 in the works that would see patriots and abductees herded into concentration camps should the UFO secret ever get out. 3. Full-time horror author and part-time UFO buff William Strieber was a known disinformation agent. It seems Strieber's more moderate outlook on the alien question made him a government plant. 
Another deep throat was UFO government scientist Robert Lazar, and I'm putting UFO government scientist in air quotes. In a number of interviews, Lazar had offered a fantastic tale about his work at the Nevada Snellis Air Force Base's mysterious Area 51. The area is a test range for secret military aircraft, uh, stuff America really, really wants to keep hidden from the, the Soviets, or I guess the Russians now. For example, U-2 spy plane pilots were trained at Nellis. Lazar said, however, stuff like flying saucers and antimatter reactors are being secretly developed there. Ooh. The UFO crowd really loved Lazar because his credentials looked pretty good. He said he got a master's degree from MIT in 1982 and worked as a physicist at Los Alamos National Labs uh, before working at Area 51. George Knapp, an anchorman at KLAS-TV in Las Vegas, Nevada, did a little digging and, oddly enough, had a hard time confirming Lazar's background. A check with Los Alamos met with official denials that Lazar was ever an employee. Was Lazar lying? Knapp dug a bit deeper and discovered a 1982 Los Alamos phone book that listed Lazar. Hmm. How could the lab deny employing Lazar when there was an obvious record of his employment? Knapp concluded that someone was trying to make Lazar's past vanish. Others have also snooped around on their own, and they're not so certain someone was out to erase Lazar's past. The inconsistencies in Lazar's story were compiled by Tom Mahood and can be viewed at his webpage at the Bob Lazar Corner. Mahood's documents revealed that a couple of skeptics checked several directories at MIT and could not find any listings of Robert Lazar. Was Lazar erased from all of them? Mahood argued it would be pretty hard to make undetectable edits to microfilm records stored in vaults. Mahood's documents also present an alternative view of the cover-up regarding Lazar's employment history with Los Alamos. Mahood had established that the lab's phone book listing included not just employees, but subcontractors. Lazar's entry indicates he worked as a technician for a subcontractor. So, while the official denial seems rather ominous, it, it, it isn't. Anyone who's ever done any temp work knows that while you might show up at some point in a company phone book, uh, you won't necessarily be entered in human resources records as an employee. So Lazar's testimony, Cooper's speeches, uh, works by such authors as Whitley Strieber, Bud Hopkins' research into alien abductions, and a series of documents called the Krill Files have formed the Torah of the UFO belief. It all sort of works like this. World authorities became concerned by reports of strange flying objects in the early 1930s. In the 1940s, Allied pilots started calling the objects Foo Fighters. Some say the Nazis not only had alien contact, but by the 1940s had UFOs and even moon bases. Well, I don't know. It wasn't until July 2, 1947, when some greys crashed a saucer at Roswell that it became clear that aliens were behind flying saucer reports. MJ-12 was formed a few years later in response to some low-level pleasure flights the greys made over the White House. MJ-12 soon arranged a meeting with the greys. After they heard about the impending invasion of man-eating reptoid aliens, MJ-12 signed a treaty that allowed abductions as long as not a lot of people were taken and they were returned unharmed. For their troubles, uh, Americans received the transfer of technology, like flying saucers for the Air Force. Area 51 became the testing ground for these newly acquired saucers, and by the mid-50s, America was on the moon. By the late 1960s, MJ-12 began to suspect the Greys were not being entirely truthful or living up to their end of the bargain. 
They were taking a lot more people than planned, and they were jamming two millimeter long mind control devices up their snouts. It also seemed the Greys weren't always giving a lot of people back. Three million people are said to be held in underground bases in the southwest. When the Reptoids arrive, the Greys are going to release their army of captured zombies from the underground bases. Implanted abductees will then be switched on like Venturian candidates and will blow up power stations and the local stuckies and stuff. The Reptoids and their faithful Grey allies will then establish a one-world government and start eating. Even with their captured and controlled humans, the Reptoid Grey tag team knows they can't go it alone. They've got their own human accomplices, members of the government, the UN, bankers, and the media. MJ-12 also had its own backup plan. If the invasion story ever got out, MJ-12 was going to suspend the Constitution, grab abductees, and stick them in camps before they can take out so much as a Dairy Queen. MJ-12 knew that sort of behavior wasn't going to sit well with true patriots, so they'll all have to be stuck in camps as well. Even with the full force of the American military, MJ-12 knew that they couldn't go it alone. They've got their own accomplices, member of the government, the UN, bankers, and the media. Who would have guessed? Alright, so tune in next week, and then we'll cover in greater detail the banker-led one-world government and the satanic-led one-world government. Bye-bye for now. Rosebud. <laughs>